Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkinson podcast on justthenews.com. A reminder to pre-order my new book, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. Boy, every day that book grows more relevant, digging into the death of the news as we knew it and who and what are behind today's disturbing trends. That's Slanted. Today we're discussing a recent instance of media malpractice with a story about President Trump supposedly disparaging fallen U.S. troops that turned out to be something quite entirely different. You seem to appreciate the deep dive analyses that I give into journalism techniques and missteps. It's so important for information consumers to understand what's going on today. And a big controversy in recent days has been a story by the left-wing The Atlantic, which made a series of claims against President Trump that the rest of the press then springboarded into headline news for days and days upon end, even though I have to say really from a neutral standpoint, at least a few years back, this story would have merited nothing more than gossip on a quasi-news site, but times have changed. The controversy gets a little convoluted, but I will do my best to break it down and summarize it fairly succinctly. Among what was said to be the biggest blockbuster claims in the Atlantic article, the headline in the first couple of graphs, was reporting, now I'm summarizing, that on a trip to France a couple of years ago, President Trump supposedly faked a weather excuse to get out of a planned helicopter trip to a nearby cemetery where fallen U.S. soldiers were buried. Also alleged that he referred to the fallen U.S. soldiers as losers and suckers. Problem number one came when various media outlets claimed to have confirmed the story, but that's completely wrong terminology, a misuse of terminology, because they really hadn't confirmed anything. All they confirmed, maybe you could say, was that sources who wished to remain anonymous were making the same claims to them, these other reporters. That doesn't confirm the story itself. It simply means that sources told other reporters the same thing. Meantime, the target of these claims, Trump, unequivocally denied these things, but joining him were numerous on-the-record sources by name who were in the meeting where he supposedly said the derogatory things about fallen U.S. troops. They came forward and said, it didn't happen. So put yourself in the place of a journalist reporting on this story. What you have at this point as a journalist is nothing more than some people claiming one thing and others claiming something different. Let's take a quick step back. Before The Atlantic reported these claims from anonymous sources, the reporter had a duty to seek out other on-the-record sources who were at the supposed meeting and to get President Trump's side of the story and so on. But instead, this was dumped out there in a one-sided fashion. And by the time we had numerous on-the-record sources saying it didn't happen and Trump's unequivocal denials it had already circulated the earth, the, uh, the claims from the Atlantic. So it's almost too late by the time another side of the story is told if it's not told in the original article thoroughly. And that's a big problem from the standpoint of accuracy and fairness. And there have been many media mistakes that mirror this in the past couple of years in that list that I keep at CherylAckison.com uh, under media mistakes in the era of Trump. 
This happens time and again with reporters making one-sided claims, often based on apparently dubious anonymous sources. Oftentimes it proves to be wrong. Um, They often did not consult or get the full story from the other side prior to publication. So this seems to be happening over and over again. But you as a journalist at the stage I described in the story at hand in The Atlantic, if all you know is one side is saying something, the other side is now saying something else, you, the reporter, were not in the room. If there's no documentary evidence or an admission by the actual target himself, you can say nothing more than there are these two sides. And you don't have to conclude which one was right. You can't. But certainly people at home can make up their own judgments about this. But there are three things that I would say, had I been covering the story on the front end, would lean in Trump's favor and make me very circumspect about reporting these sorts of allegations, especially when we are so often used by propagandists as tools in political campaigns and corporate agendas and so on. We have to be very careful. And I would look at this and say, well, the White House quickly released a document after the Atlantic story showing that there was a weather cancellation, a weather reason that the helicopter did not fly the president to the cemetery in France. In fact, the documentation and the emails show who in the military made this call and when they made it. A second thing favoring the truth of the Trump side of things was former Ambassador John Bolton, who is a noted Trump critic now, but was working for President Trump at the time this story is being told. He actually has come out and said he was at the meeting in question and the Atlantic got it wrong. He said, Bolton did, that was simply false, and I don't know who told the author that, speaking of the Atlantic story. Bolton says he was in the room, he named everyone in the room, said there was a weather cancellation. He says the president assented to the recommendation that he not go. Bolton says it was a very straight weather call. Meantime, a separate controversy in the story arose when Fox News claimed to have confirmed the story in the Atlantic. But then if you listen to what the Fox News reporter said, the details differed entirely from what The Atlantic had alleged. In other words, it seems to me Fox News should have reported, based on what they said they learned from their sources, that their sources disputed the upshot of The Atlantic article. Fox reporter, their sources said Trump didn't call fallen U.S. soldiers' names, but that at an entirely different time and place, at the Pentagon in the U.S., Trump called living generals, losers, and babies. Now, that version is a far cry from the story that he canceled a trip to a cemetery in France calling the dead soldiers from the U.S. losers and suckers. And secondly, Fox's supposed confirmation of the Atlantic consisted of another detail that actually contradicted the Atlantic. Fox said their sources said that when the helicopter couldn't fly that it was due to weather and that Trump chose against driving to the cemetery thereafter in a car. Again, that contradicts what the Atlantic said. Remember, the Atlantic said there was no weather cancellation of the helicopter ride, that it was faked and made up and false because Trump didn't want to get his hair messed up in the rain at the cemetery and had called names of the dead soldiers. So at this stage, what could have Fox reported? Seems to me that they should have said Their sources could not confirm the Atlantic article instead of the other way around, and that they should have said their sources had entirely different details. None of the details included that President Trump had fabricated or made up the weather emergency, as the Atlantic reported, or called 
dead U.S. soldiers' names, as The Atlantic had reported. So why did Fox exactly report their story as if it were confirmation of The Atlantic's story instead of the other way around? A third part of the controversy, when it came to look like The Atlantic was wrong, Trump's enemies began revising the narrative, and that got quite interesting to watch in the media. Instead of people revising what they had reported or acknowledging maybe there had been a terrible smear, a mistake of some kind, people started saying, well, the news story is that Trump disrespects military leadership by calling them names. No mention of The Atlantic getting the key thesis of its blockbuster story supposedly wrong. In fact, an anchor at Fox News, when faced with Bolton's unequivocal denials that the events as described in The Atlantic ever happened, In an interview with Bolton himself, they seemed not to want to address the discrepancy. And instead, the anchor said, well, the bigger question is the president's general attitude toward the military. No, that wasn't the question. That wasn't any part of the original allegations in The Atlantic. But see how that's morphed into something entirely different when it looks like The Atlantic allegations are falling apart. As of the time I'm recording this, there may be yet more developments But this goes down so far in my book as a major media misstep. It's such a perilous business, really any time, but especially right before an election, for us to allow ourselves to be used by political operatives, anonymous sources, one-sided reporting, especially after 2016 and since when we've gotten so many of the big things wrong. We hurt ourselves in the media with these sorts of shenanigans because so many people see through it and it just means they're coming to believe little of what we report, even when it's the truth. And I can't blame them. We'll have more, including Glenn Greenwald's take on these trends after a short break. Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture, and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. We're back. Glenn Greenwald of the left-leaning The Intercept wrote a really spot-on article about the things we've spoken about, particularly surrounding the Atlantic article and other news outlets claiming they had confirmed the story when, in fact, they had just had sources tell them something similar. That doesn't confirm the story at all. It just confirms someone's making the claims. And he dives deeply into this. If you want to read it for yourself, I'm going to excerpt from it here. But it's called Journalism's New Propaganda Tool, using confirmed to mean its opposite. He goes on to say, outlets claiming to have confirmed Jeffrey Goldberg's story, that's in The Atlantic, about Trump's troop comments are again abusing that vital term, confirmed. So I'm going to just skip through and read some of this article. It's so well done. I, I think he's just so on target here. He says, one of the most humiliating journalism debacles of the Trump era played out on December 8th, 2017, first on CNN and then on MSNBC. This is a good reminder of why we have to be so careful, something that happened in the past, the recent past. He says, 
The spectacle kicked off on that Friday morning at 11 a.m. when CNN, deploying its most melodramatic music and graphics, designed to convey that a real bombshell was about to be dropped, announced that anonymous sources had provided the network with a smoking gun, proving the Trump-Russia conspiracy once and for all. During the 2016 campaign, this is what CNN reported, Donald Trump Jr. had received a September 4th email with a secret encryption key that gave him, Donald Trump Jr., advanced access to WikiLeaks servers containing those DNC emails, which WikiLeaks would subsequently release to the public 10 days later. Cable news and online media spontaneously combusted after this report by CNN, Greenwald says, as is their want, in shock, hysteria, and awe over this supposed proof that WikiLeaks and Trump were all in cahoots. Greenwald continues, CNN has ensured that no videos of the festivities are available on YouTube for anyone to watch. That's because the claim was completely false in its most crucial respect. CNN misreported the date of the smoking gun email Trump Jr. received. Rather than being sent to him on September 4th, 10 days prior to WikiLeaks' public release, thus implying enabled secret access, the email was merely sent by a random member of the public after the public release by WikiLeaks on September 14th, encouraging Trump Jr. to look at these now public emails. So there was no conspiracy shown in this sourcing and in this story that CNN breathlessly reported. Back to Greenwald, he says, though the original false report cannot be viewed any longer, one can view the cringe-inducing video of CNN's senior congressional correspondent, Manu Raju, explaining after the Washington Post had debunked the story that, quote, we are actually correcting the reporting. Raju doing his best to downplay what a massive blunder this was, Greenwald says. And he notes in parentheses, though the whole thing is fantastic, my favorite line is when Raju says, with no small amount of understatement, quote, this appears to change the understanding of the story. Perhaps the initial understanding of what this email was perhaps is not as significant based on what we know now. Greenwald continues, the CNN page, which originally published the blockbuster story, contains a rather significant correction. And he says, so mistakes happen, even huge and embarrassing ones. But the reason that this sorry episode is so important is that it now reflects a common but highly corrosive tactic of journalism deceit. Greenwald says very shortly after CNN unveiled its false story, MSNBC's intelligence community spokesman Ken Delanian went on air and breathlessly announced that he had obtained independent confirmation that the CNN story was true. Greenwald says, In a video segment I cannot recommend highly enough, Delanian was introduced by an incredibly excited Hallie Jackson who urged Delanian to, quote, tell us what we've now learned. I know you and some of our colleagues have confirmed some of this information. What's up? Delanian then proceeded to explain what he had learned. He said, that's right, Haley. Two sources with direct knowledge of this are telling us that congressional investigators have obtained an email from a man named Mike Erickson. Obviously, they don't know if that's his real name. Offering Donald Trump and his son, Donald Trump Jr., access to WikiLeaks documents. It goes to the heart of the collusion question. One of the big questions is, did Trump Jr. call the FBI when he got this supposedly 
secret email. Greenwald goes on to write, how could this happen? How could MSNBC purport to confirm a false story from CNN? Shortly after, CBS News also purported to have confirmed the same false story that Trump Jr. received advanced access to the WikiLeaks documents. It's one thing for a news outlet to make a mistake in reporting by, for instance, misreporting the date of an email and thus getting the story completely wrong, but how is it possible that multiple other outlets could confirm the same false report? Greenwald writes, it's possible because news outlets have completely distorted the term confirmation beyond all recognition. Indeed, they now use it to mean the exact opposite of what it actually means, thereby draping themselves in journalistic glory they have not earned, and worse, deceiving the public into believing that an unproven assertion has, in fact, been proven. With this disinformation method, they are doing the exact opposite of what journalism at its core is supposed to do, separate fact from speculation. Greenwald writes, CNN ultimately blamed its anonymous sources for this error, but refused to out them by insisting that it was somehow a good faith mistake rather than deliberate disinformation. How did multiple good faith sources all accidentally misread the same email date the same way? CNN and the spirit of news outlets refusing to provide the accountability and transparency for themselves that they demand from others refuses to this very day to address that question, says Greenwald. But what is clear is that the confirmation, which both MSNBC and CBS claimed it had obtained for the story, was anything but. All that happened was that the same sources, which anonymously whispered these unverified false claims to CNN, then went and repeated the same unverified false claims to other outlets, which then claimed they independently confirmed the story even though they had done nothing of the sort. Does it sound familiar? Greenwald goes on to write, it seems the same misleading tactic is now driving the supremely dumb but all-consuming news cycle centered on whether President Trump, as first reported by The Atlantic's editor-in-chief Jeffrey Goldberg, made disparaging comments about the troops. Goldberg claims that, quote, four people with firsthand knowledge of the discussion that day whom the magazine refuses to name because they fear angry tweets, told him that Trump made these comments. Trump, as well as former aides who were present that day, including Sarah Huckabee Sanders and John Bolton, deny that the report is accurate. So, Greenwald writes, we have anonymous sources making claims on one side, and Trump and former aides, including Bolton, now a harsh critic of Trump, insisting that the Atlantic story is inaccurate. Beyond deciding whether or not to believe Goldberg's story based on what best advances one's political interests, how can one resolve the factual dispute? If other media outlets could confirm the original claims from Goldberg, that would obviously be a significant advancement of the story. Greenwald writes, other media outlets, including Associated Press and Fox News, now claim that they did exactly that, confirmed the Atlantic story. But if one looks at what they actually did, and what this confirmation consists of, it is the opposite of what the word would mean or should mean in any minimally responsible sense. AP, for instance, says Greenwald, merely claims that a senior Defense Department official with firsthand knowledge of events and a senior U.S. Marine Corps officer who was told about Trump's comments confirmed some of the remarks to the Associated Press. While Fox merely said, quote, 
a former senior Trump administration official who was in France traveling with the president in November 2018 did confirm other details surrounding that trip. In other words, Greenwald writes, all that likely happened is that the same sources who claimed to Jeffrey Goldberg at The Atlantic with no evidence that Trump said this went to other outlets and repeated the same claims, the same tactic that enabled MSNBC and CBS to claim they had confirmed the fundamentally false CNN story about Trump Jr. receiving advanced access to the WikiLeaks archive. Or perhaps it was different sources aligned with those original sources and sharing their agenda who repeated these claims. Given that none of the sources making these claims have the courage to identify themselves due to their fear of mean tweets, Greenwald says it is impossible to know. But whatever happened, neither AP nor Fox obtained anything resembling confirmation. They just heard the same assertions that Goldberg heard, likely from the same circles, if not the same people, and are now abusing the term confirmation to mean unproven assertions or unverifiable claims. Indeed, Fox now says that two sources who were on the trip in question with Trump refuted the main thesis of the Atlantic's reporting. Okay, a little bit more. Greenwald goes on to write, it should go without saying that none of this means that Trump did not utter these remarks or ones similar to them. He has made public statements in the past that are at least in the same universe as the ones reported by The Atlantic. And it is quite believable that he would have said something like this, though the absolute last person who should be trusted with anything, particularly interpreting claims from anonymous sources, is Jeffrey Goldberg, who has risen to one of the most important perches in journalism despite or more accurately because of one of the most disgraceful and damaging records of spreading disinformation in service of the Pentagon and intelligence community's agenda. But Greenwald writes, journalism is not supposed to be grounded in whether something is believable or seems like it could be true. Its core purpose, the only thing that really makes it matter or have worth, is reporting what is true or at least what evidence reveals. And that function is completely subverted when news outlets claim they confirmed a previous report when they did nothing more than just talk to the same people who anonymously whispered the same things to them as were whispered to the original outlet. Quite aside from this specific story about whether Trump loves the troops, Greenwald writes, conflating the crucial journalistic concept of confirmation with hearing the same idle gossip or unproven assertions is a huge disservice. It is an instrument of propaganda, not reporting, and its use has repeatedly deceived rather than informed the public. Anyone who doubts that should review how it is that MSNBC and CBS both claim to have confirmed a CNN report, which turned out to be ludicrously and laughably false. Clearly, the term confirmation has lost its meaning in journalism. Again, you can find that article by Glenn Greenwald in The Intercept from September 5th, titled Journalism's New Propaganda Tool, Using Confirmed to Mean Its Opposite. These may seem like picky points or arcane details inside our industry, but they're very important. They're actually the heart of what journalism is all about, the heart of what makes us have worth at all, as Greenwald says. And once we give up the notion that we have to be accurate and fair, once we start using rumor and supposition and stories about what seems to ring true to us, we've left behind our ethics and our standards, and we're dropping off in terms of credibility with the public. I have no doubt that more of these sorts of incidents and stories are to come. In fact, 
If I know anything about politics and what we learned from 2016, but of course, even prior to that, there are operatives on both sides working to try to drop bombshells and have them circulate and get reported, probably a couple of them a week, maybe specially timed to impact polling or the debates, maybe so a certain question will be raised at a debate or certain spin will be had. And this will go on through the election. So hang on to your hat. But it felt a lot like 2016 when I saw this, what I think is misreporting. And so I looked back. I thought this was pretty interesting to see what was in the news regarding the campaign four years ago this very week. And I'll read you some of the articles that turned up. Four years ago this week, the press was sort of criticizing Trump's pro-military stance, ironically enough. The New York Times reported Donald Trump earns backing of nearly 90 military figures. There was also reports on a scandal we've now forgotten a little bit about. The New Yorker said, Trump University, the scandal that won't go away. Apparently it will, because I haven't heard much about it lately. There was a story in the Wall Street Journal about Donald Trump and the mob. (laughs) And it said, uh, Donald Trump dealt with a series of people who had mob ties. GOP nominee Donald Trump's business career is dotted with instances where he worked with people who had ties to gangsters. Then there was a story four years ago this week from Chris Saliza in the Washington Post. This is pretty funny. He wrote, no, Donald Trump, you still don't have a ground game. I'm going to excerpt a little from that article because you can see how Boy, there were so many bad predictions in 2016. It seemed like we haven't learned our lesson. But Chris Lizza wrote that the Tampa Bay Times had reported something absolutely amazing that day, that Donald Trump has a total of one field office open in Florida. One, says Chris Lizza. And here's what's kind of funny. He's quoting another reporter from the Tampa Bay Times, Adam Smith, in saying, on August 8th, remember this is 2016, The Donald Trump campaign said its first two dozen campaign field offices would open across Florida within two weeks. Since then, not a single new Trump office has opened in America's biggest battleground state. But Hillary Clinton's campaign added another 32. The Republican nominee only has a Sarasota statewide headquarters open in the state. He must absolutely win to be elected president. While the Democratic nominee has 51 offices, even though she has multiple paths to winning that don't require Florida's 29 electoral votes. And Chris Saliza of The Post writes, that is stunning. One campaign office in Sarasota on Labor Day weekend of an election year with a presidential vote only 68 days away. And he goes on to write, let me say it a different way. Clinton has 50 more field offices than Trump in one of the most important and largest swing states in the country. 50. By way of comparison, President Obama had 102 field offices in Florida during his 2012 reelection race. Rival Mitt Romney had 48. No candidate in modern memory has had just one field office in a state as big and as important as Florida. It just doesn't happen. And Florida isn't the exception, it's the rule when it comes to Trump's total lack of field and turnout operation. The last little bit I'll read from Chris Saliza in The Post in 2016. He says, one field office in a state that cast more than 8 million votes in 2012, Obama took 4.2 million, Romney 4.1 million, is campaign malpractice. There's simply no way around it. And then I will remind you that Trump won Florida. 
Okay, another story four years ago this week, CNN pointed out again Trump's pro-military stance. Kind of funny he's being attacked as anti-military now. This article was entitled, Trump Calls for Military Spending Increase. There were more scandals that sort of have fallen by the wayside four years ago. There was the New York Daily News exclusive. Donald Trump made millions from Saudi Arabia, but trashes Hillary Clinton for Saudi donations to Clinton Foundation. And then there was NPR reporting Trump Foundation faces scrutiny, too, regarding political contribution. There was Scientific American reporting Donald Trump's lack of respect for science is alarming. Rolling Stone had the article flailing on race and immigration, his campaign in chaos. The candidate who made a brilliant farce of the election is now finding the joke is on him. And that article, by the way, was titled How Donald Trump Lost His Mojo. Again, he won the election. And there's Mother Jones. Mother Jones writes, Senator calls for Homeland Security to investigate Trump's model agency. So amid all of these stories, I did sort of a cursory search, but I was kind of surprised there were not a lot of racism stories yet. And I will remind you, as I wrote about in The Smear, the portrait of Donald Trump as a racist or white supremacist was something that was constructed quite late in the game. In fact, this was the invention of the David Brock network of propaganda groups, including Media Matters. And I documented that this whole thing arose in a fairly short period of time in mid-August of 2016, after a lot of other narratives had been tried, such as Donald Trump is a clown and Donald Trump is dark, Donald Trump doesn't really want to win, all of that. Then came the racism and white racist narrative. The collective David Brock propaganda groups began a theme and a meme of Trump and his supporters as white nationalists. Brock's Blue Nation Review pummeled Trump in six days with all of the following smear articles at once. This is the start of it, y'all. First one was Trump shakes up staff and braces white nationalism, August 17th, 2016. There was also Trump's purity test for immigrants is more evidence of his white nationalist plans. And Trump is seeking a white nationalist awakening, not the White House. And new video, Trump is now leading a white nationalist awakening. And is Trump's new America First app designed to connect white nationalists? And then finally, Trump delivers anti-black rant. You're living in poverty. Your schools are no good. So buckle your seatbelt, as they say. I think we are in for a wild few weeks from now until November 3rd. From the look of things, there's also a concerted current effort underway to convince us to prepare for chaos after the election, too. Think about it. Even though not one ballot has been cast or counted, a whole lot of people, including Facebook's Mark Zuckerberg, are saying they think they have to prepare us for the reality that the election will not be decided for weeks after the vote or maybe even months. Good luck to all of us. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Check out justthenews.com and don't forget to subscribe to the Cheryl Ackeson podcast. Leave a good review, share it with others and check out my other podcast, 
Full Measure After Hours, and all of the Just the News podcasts wherever you like to listen. I hope you will pre-order Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. If you would like this for yourself or to buy as a holiday gift for someone who cares about these topics, I'm happy to send you a free signed book plate sticker for Slanted. You can get that by emailing me your request to info at CherylAckison.com, info at CherylAckison.com. You have to include your snail mail address and who you want the book plate signed to, or I won't know where to send them and who to make it out to. Another way you can order the book or order the free book plate, you can go to CherylAckison.com. Maybe that's easier. Look for the tab at the top that says how to pre-order slanted. Do your own research, make up your own mind, think for yourself.